I was 18, 18 and a half, and I was called out. I saw two battlefields, one at Passchendaele and one at uh, Pilkem. I should never forget it as long as I live. The officer was going down the trench. Anybody who didn't go in was shot on sight for cowardice. We went over and we crawled. If you stood up, you were dead. And I came across a Cornishman. He was ripped from his shoulder to his stomach with shrapnel. His inside was out on the ground in a pool of blood. He said, shoot me. Before we could draw a revolver to shoot him, he was beyond all human aid. He died. In 30 seconds he died, and he just said one word, mother, and that haunted me all my life. Hello everyone, that was the voice of Harry Patch, the last surviving Tommy, or British soldier, of World War I. He's describing the inhuman horrors of the trenches during that massive orgy of slaughter that left anywhere between 15 and 22 million dead. Like Harry, much of the world has been collectively haunted by the greatest disaster of modern European history. On top of the dead, a further 23 million sustained lifelong injuries. The psychological damage and how it ripples through future generations is unmeasurable. The war destroyed the hard-earned wealth of the 19th century, sparked the Russian Revolution, sowed the seeds of today's conflicts in the Middle East, and far from being a war to end wars, simply set up the conditions for an even more brutal rerun 20 years later. We are left only to imagine a world where this catastrophe had been averted, one where Europe in the 20th century didn't sacrifice two entire generations of young men and all they would have brought. One where the continent became progressively more stable, peaceful, and embracing of the values of liberty. What world would we live in today? Was such a world even possible? Many people think so, contending that the outbreak of war was entirely avoidable, the result of some diplomatic blundering and military posturing that no one intended to go so far. Others contend that the war was more intentional, deliberately brought about by imperialists wanting to play on the grandest chessboard of them all. Still others think that whilst the war might not have been intended, the rejection of liberal values and increasingly nationalistic nature of Europe meant violence was inevitable sooner or later. Unlike other conflicts covered in this series, the First World War is known to everyone. I'll often have people tell me they didn't know anything about events in Puerto Rico or Panama or South Africa but everyone knows at least the basic outline of this war. If you don't, there are a million resources online explaining it. Given that, I'm going to briefly run over the basics, then focus this presentation on issues most pertinent to the series. How does this war fit with the emergence of a dominant global empire in the 20th century? Was it deliberately engineered to bring such a dominion about? Was it an accidental occurrence that ended up feeding into such an empire anyway? Or is there really no substantial connection? Let's first go over a basic narrative. Permission to ask a question, sir? Permission granted, Borwick. As long as it isn't the one about where babies come from. <laughs> no, 
the thing is, the way I see it, these days there's a war on, right? And ages ago there wasn't a war on, right? So there must have been a moment when they're not being a war on went away, right? And there being a war on came along. So what I want to know is how did we get from the one case of affairs to the other case of affairs? Do you mean, how did the war start? <laughs> yeah. The immediate cause of the war occurred on the 28th of June, 1914, when heir to the Austrian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were assassinated whilst visiting Bosnia. The provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina had been annexed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire five years earlier, after they broke away from the Ottoman Empire. The Duke was assassinated by members of Young Bosnia, a group dedicated to bringing about a unified state for Slavic people, a dream that would be realised as Yugoslavia after the war. The assassination led to violent repression of Serbs in Bosnia. Some members of the Austrian government saw the assassination as an opportunity to end Serbian interference in Bosnia for a short and decisive war. As they could not prove Serbian state involvement, the Austrian government issued obviously unacceptable demands with the intent of provoking that war. Serbia refused to allow Austria to suppress subversive elements inside its borders and take part in the investigation and trial of Serbians linked to the assassination. On the 28th of July, the Austrian government declared war and began shelling Belgrade. Serbia was allied with the Russian Empire, who sent an ultimatum to Austria warning them not to initiate a war, then began to mobilise their army. Austria had received a guarantee from Germany of support against Russia, the so-called blank check. The German Empire demanded Russian demobilization on the 31st of July, and receiving no response, declared war the following day. Now this is where things get a little bit strange. The German army then marched through Belgium and Luxembourg to invade France. This is what is known as the Schlieffen Plan. France was allied with Russia, and German military commanders wanted to avoid a two-front war. The plan was to take out France quickly, then move the bulk of the army to the east. On the 4th of August, the British Empire declared war on Germany, ostensibly in defence of Belgium neutrality. And so, the Great War came to Europe. The Ottoman Empire would attack Russia in October, whilst Italy, seeking territorial expansion, declared war on Austria in May of 1915. This has been a ridiculously brief summary, and I'll link to a more thorough presentation in the info box. Let's now look at how historians have attributed blame for these events. You see, Baldick, in order to prevent war in Europe, two super blocks developed. Us, the French and the Russians on one side, and the Germans and Austro-Hungary on the other. The idea was to have two vast opposing armies, each acting as the other's deterrent. That way, there could never be a war. But this is a sort of a war, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's right. You see, there was a tiny flaw in the plan. What was that, sir? It was bollocks. <laughs> Given the overwhelming historical importance of the war, and the fact a full century has elapsed, it's striking that historians still argue over who was primarily responsible. The British military historian Max Hastings takes the possibly most common view that whilst no nation deserves all responsibility for the outbreak of war, Germany seems to deserve most. Hastings writes that Germany alone had the power to halt the descent into disaster at any time in July 1914 by withdrawing its blank check 
which offered support to Austria for its invasion of Serbia. Hastings rejects the notion Serbia was acting as a rogue state, whereas by contrast, Cambridge historian Richard Evans embraces it, placing greatest responsibility with the Serbs for their backing of black-hand terrorists. Evans acknowledges that Germany encouraged Austrian intransigence, but points out that seemingly victimised France did very much the same with Russia. Historian Sean McMeekin echoes and accentuates this point, stating that Russia, after receiving its own blank cheque from France, mobilised first and transformed a regional conflict into a continent-wide war. Gary Sheffield from the University of Wolverhampton disagrees, claiming that Russia's mobilisation was purely defensive. We also have the idea that no one is to blame, that Europe slept-walked into war. The one I think appeals to me the most, and doesn't necessarily preclude any others, is that advanced by libertarian historian Ralph Rako, that European nations increasingly abandoned a philosophy of liberty and individual rights in favour of collectivism and statism during the latter third of the 19th century. This may not have made that particular war inevitable, but it made some war inevitable at some point. In all of this, very little blame is attributed to Britain. In contrast to the Boer War, where British actions are pretty hard to defend, here they look either virtuous, coming to the aid of neutral Belgium, or at worst, defensive, acting to prevent a German-dominated Europe. For a more critical take, it seems we must look outside of mainstream academia to more independent historians. Perthidius Albion is the subject of Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's book, Hidden History, The Secret Origins of the First World War. At the outset of the book, they write, The history of the First World War is a deliberately concocted lie. Not the sacrifice, the heroism, the horrendous waste of life or the misery that followed. No, these were very real. But the truth of how it all began and how it was unnecessarily and deliberately prolonged beyond 1915 has been successfully covered up for a century. A carefully falsified history was created to conceal the fact that Britain, not Germany, was responsible for the war. Had the truth become widely known after 1918, the consequences for the British Empire would have been cataclysmic. Doherty and McGregor place the war in the context of the Anglo-American establishment. The group of British elites collected in a secretive society by Cecil Rhodes, dedicated to spreading the British Empire to the four corners of the earth. They see the Great War as a part of this plan, engineered by Britain to take out their rising imperial rival, Germany. In this series so far, I don't think I've taken any radical positions on anything. Perhaps I've explored history from a certain perspective, proposing there is a form of empire which continuously recreates itself. But as for the facts, I think I've remained firmly inside a widely accepted narrative. Doherty and McGregor's hypothesis is so far outside of that narrative, it must be either revolutionary or madness. Either way, it's not new. Indeed, the German government was claiming as much as soon as the war broke out. German propaganda remained directed by the military and its hectoring tone often failed abroad. But the domestic public remained convinced of the justness of their cause. The London School of Economics' Sonke Neitzel. Very soon after the war broke out, it was, uh, in the German perception, 
it's Britain. It's Britain's guilt, and Britain is the arch enemy in this war. It's this phrase, perfide Albion. They drove France and Russia into the war. They had a conspiracy. It's a weird perception of Britain, by the way. It's not driven by any rational data, something like that. It was just the explanation um, who's responsible. It must be Britain, because the French are too stupid, possibly, and the Russians also. And you know, Britain is the cunning figure behind all that. So if you ask the question, why do we have this bloody awful war? It's Britain. Germans felt powerless. So you, you can defeat Russia, possibly. You can defeat France. At least you, you might think you can defeat France. But how can you defeat Britain? And there are always 36 kilometers water in between. I actually found an interesting first-hand account of this from British soldier Henry Williamson, who was interviewed about his experience of the Christmas truce, where he spoke with German soldiers. The Germans started burying their dead, which frozen out, and we, we picked up ours and buried them. And little crosses of ration box wood were nailed together, quite small ones, and indelible pencil they would put, the Germans, for Vaterland und Freiheit, for fatherland and freedom. And I said to a German, excuse me, but how can you be fighting for freedom? You started the war, and we are fighting for freedom. And he said, excuse me, English comrade, camarade, but we are fighting for freedom for our country. And I say, you also put, here rest in God, an unbecanter, held. Here rest in God, an unknown hero, in God. Oh yes, God is on our side. But I said, he's on our side. And... That was a tremendous shock when we began to think that these chaps, who were like ourselves, whom we liked, and who felt about the wars we did, and who said, it'll be over soon because uh, we will win the war in Russia. And we said, no, but the Russian steamroller is going to win the war in Russia. Well, English comrade, do not let us quarrel on Christmas Day. Is it the case that Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor have simply become ensnared by some old German propaganda? Or does something more solid underpin their claims? Let's see. Well, first one caveat. Their book is 464 pages long, and that's just the one on how the war started. So I won't be able to do it anything like justice in a single podcast. It's a theme I would love to spin off from this series for further investigation. For now, I'll have to content myself with laying out the outline of their most compelling arguments. If you recall in episode 7, I examined how in 1902, Britain broke with its policy of splendid isolation and entered into a treaty with Japan. The major aim of this was curtailing Russian expansion into Asia, and British shipyards supplied the Japanese navy with the ships necessary to win stunning naval victories in the War of 1905. I referenced Doherty and McGregor's book on this in the chapter they titled Taming the Bear. Russia, due to its geography, population and rapid pace of industrialization, was a major imperial rival. In the decades leading up to the First World War, Germany had emerged from nowhere to become an equally important rival. Through victorious wars with Denmark, Austria and ultimately France, the multitude of small German states became unified into the German Empire in 1871. 
This fundamentally shifted the balance of power in Europe, with Germany emerging as the strongest continental power over the ensuing decades. This was the war in which Germany took the provinces off Alsace and Lorraine from France, an issue which caused resentment contributing to the First World War. During this time, German industry boomed to rival Britons. I'll play a clip from the documentary film The German Empire, 1871-1918, to illustrate this development. Germany under steam. The railway becomes the engine of industrialization. 1835, its first journey from Nuremberg to Fürth, racing along at up to 40 kilometers per hour, breathtakingly fast for the contemporaries. Railway stations become the palaces of modern mobility, functional and representative at the same time. The horse of steel stands for the conquest of space and time. The first trains still come from England, but German engineers and machinists are already on the fast track, and it leads to Berlin. Mid-19th century, on the banks of the Spree, Germany's most modern ironworks rises. Lokomotivenfabrik August Borsig. It makes Prussia independent from the English competition. Another entrepreneur, Henry Strausberg, becomes known as the Railway King. He builds new lines through half of Europe. The railway connects cities and industrial centers beyond all borders. By the late 19th century, the railway network grows many times over. This transport revolution accelerates Germany's economic unity. The railway business is booming and makes speculators like Strausberg rich. Self-assured, he shows himself with his family outside his palace. 1896, the Industrial Exposition in Berlin. The German economy makes a breakthrough. New technology is proudly displayed. The state encourages this development by establishing trade schools. A push for modernization triggered by the close connection between science and research. The steel industry too is booming. By the late 19th century, the German Empire is already the third largest economic power in the world. Automobile pioneer Karl Benz with his wife, Bertha. The automobile makes its triumphant march throughout the entire world, thrilling the masses. But the new magic word is electricity. Two Berlin companies, Siemens and AEG, stand at the peak of the electro industry and rule the world market. Electrical current is even more fascinating than steam and steel. It is invisible and makes the incredible possible. So now news can be sent all over the globe by means of telegraphy. Germany's economic power is feared abroad, especially in England. There, German products must now be labeled made in Germany. Intended as a disparagement, the label becomes a seal of quality and a worldwide trademark.
Germany also engaged in a naval arms race with Britain, although had abandoned this prior to the outbreak of war. The British Navy was in the process of being converted from coal to oil. This led to conflict with Germany in the Middle East, as both countries sought reliable access to this new black gold. This is a theme F. William Engerdahl explored in his book, A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics and the New World Order. Here's a clip from James Corbett's documentary, How Big Oil Conquered the World, explaining this. In 1889, a consortium of German investors led by Siemens Deutsche Bank obtained a concession from the Turkish government for extension of a railway line connecting Berlin to Basra on the Persian Gulf via Baghdad in what was then part of the Ottoman Empire. The Berlin-Baghdad railway concession was for 99 years and came with mineral rights for 20 kilometers on either side of the line, an especially lucrative deal since the rail cut right through the heart of the still-untapped Mesopotamian oil region south of Mosul along the Tigris River. For the powers behind the British Empire, concerned with the military rise of Germany, this deal was unacceptable. Well, Germany in the end of the 19th century was looking for outlets for its exports, its industrial exports, as the German economy was growing like China is uh, growing in the last 30 years. And they decided that Turkey would be an ideal strategic trade partner for Germany. And Georg von Siemens, uh, one of the directors of Deutsche Bank, came up with a strategy to extend a railway from Berlin all the way down to Baghdad, which was then part of Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, Baghdad and Iraq today, near the Persian Gulf. And German military began training the Turkish military. Uh, the German industry began investing in Turkey. They saw a huge potential market to begin bringing Turkey into the 20th century economically. Well, Deutsche Bank also negotiated mineral rights. I think it was 20 kilometers on either side of the railway. And it was already known in 1914 that Mosul and these other areas contained huge petroleum deposits. Well, why is that significant? At the end of the century, 19th century, Jack Fisher, the Lord of the Admiralty and, and the head of the Royal Navy, uh, advocated the conversion of the British Navy from coal-fired to oil-fired, that it would have a qualitative strategic improvement in their uh, every aspect of, of warship design. And since Britain didn't know that they had any oil back then, they went to Persia and swindled the Shah at that time out of uh, oil rights in Persia. They went to Kuwait and backed a coup d'etat of, of the Al-Sabah uh, family to be a British pawn. And they literally wrote a contract with him that nothing that Kuwait does with the outside world will be done without approval of the British governor. And Kuwait was known to have oil and lying right on the Persian Gulf. Well, the British looked at this railway plan of the Germans going right down to Baghdad and said, my God, you can put soldiers on rail cars and bring them down and threaten the oil lifeline of the British Navy. This is a strategic uh, 
move by the Germans. It also would make Germany independent of the British control of the seas. The British oligarchs, including the British crown with its hidden controlling stake in Anglo-Persian oil and the Rothschilds merchant Marcus Samuel at Royal Dutch Shell, sought to counter this German threat to their commercial and strategic interests. They used Armenian-born, naturalized British citizen Kalust Golbekian, the architect of the Royal Dutch Shell merger, in order, as he later recalled, to see British influence get the upper hand in Turkey against the Germans. If that was his task, it was a remarkable success. In 1909, the British set up the Turkish National Bank, which was Turkish in name only. Founded by London banker Sir Edward Castle and with directors like Hugo Baring of the Baring's banking family, Castle himself, and Gulbenkian, the bank set up the Turkish Petroleum Company in 1912. Formed explicitly to exploit the petroleum-rich oil fields of Iraq, then part of the Ottoman Empire, Gulbenkian brokered a deal that forced Deutsche Bank, with its 40-kilometer concessions along the oil-rich Baghdad railway line, into a junior partnership in the company. The stock was split so the British government's Anglo-Persian oil company owned half the shares, with Royal Dutch Shell and Deutsche Bank splitting the other half. Their plan to take over Germany's Turkish oil interests had been successful, but in an amazing irony, it didn't even matter. Gulbenkian finished negotiations for the Iraqi oil concession on June 28, 1914, the same day Archduke Ferdinand was shot in Sarajevo. An alliance the British had been brokering for years to constrain the rising German threat, an alliance involving France and Russia, kicked into motion and the world was engulfed in war. By the end of World War I, the British and their allies had taken over Iraq and its oil deposits anyway, Germany had been completely cut out, and Gulbenkian, their scheming servant, received 5% of all oil field proceeds in the newly minted country. Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's thesis is that British imperialists who had bought into the vision of Cecil Rhodes, the vision of a British-dominated world order, perceived the need to neuter Germany through war. As we go along now, I'll play some clips of a rare interview Jerry Doherty gave to James Corbett to illustrate his points. The dream of actually crushing Germany. The Romans had the same problem with Carthage. You know, they kept on and on about Delenda S. Carthagena. We had to get crushed Carthage. This was the basic mindset of this group as it gathered together. Prior to any investigation, I find this hypothesis compelling. It makes sense that a dominant imperial power would want to neuter an upstart, otherwise set to surpass it. Absent an intervention, perhaps Britain would become a second-rate world power. Anglo-Saxon culture would fail to become the global culture as Rhodes and his entourage wanted. I do think the case can be overstated, however. It's noteworthy that Doherty and McGregor don't mention that, in his last will and testament, Cecil Rhodes wrote about Germany becoming a major player on the global stage. He did not even hint at conflict, however. Rather, in addition to citizens of the Empire and United States, he extended Rhodes scholarships to Germans in the hope of fostering good communications between the countries. Students were to be nominated by the German Emperor as a good understanding between England, Germany and the United States of America will secure the peace of the world and educational relations form the strongest tie. Doherty and McGregor must be well aware Rhodes wrote this, yet they omit to mention it and in doing so present certainly a more cohesive picture of British imperial policy. 
With that being acknowledged, let's now look at the case for how imperialists were supposed to have brought the war about. I stress this will be a brief overview of a very long and detailed argument. The first thing Doherty and McGregor illustrate is an anti-German media campaign in England, which they claim was orchestrated in the years prior to the war. Because stories began to emerge, especially from the early 1900s, that made Germany the new bogeyman. There was in particular a writer of dreadful novels. I can't stress the word dreadful hard enough, but he had a wonderful following, uh, William Lequeux, Q-U-E-U-X. Here's the extent to which Lequeux had influence, or those of influence back Lequeux. He wrote a ridiculous, a ridiculous uh, novel. It's, it's, it pains me to call it a novel story called 1910. Now, in, in this story, Germany invades Britain in 1910 and they're marching through the, the, the counties of England and they're going to take over the government and all tragedy lies ahead and, and stupid numbers like 250,000 German spies are already here. Um, what is interesting later is that Northcliffe was the editor of the Daily Mail of the time, the owner of the Daily Mail. And Northcliffe actually spoke to Lequeux and said, look, do you think we could um, change the way that the Germans are invading Britain and go to more major cities? Because each day they said which city the Germans would be in. I mean, it got to ridiculous levels like this. They actually changed the route map in order to sell more papers. But the invidious thing behind it was this message that we have an enemy and they're called Germany and he's called the Kaiser. And the Kaiser was continually bad-mouthed. The novel Jerry Doherty is describing, The Invasion of 1910, was actually a reworking of an 1894 book, The Great War in England in 1897. At that time it was the French who were invading, and the Germans came to the rescue. This was before the signing of the Entente Cordiale with France in 1904. In Hidden History, Doherty and McGregor also point out that the Daily Mail, ever the Daily Mail, built up mass alarm by dressing its London newspaper vendors as Prussian soldiers, complete with pickle hole helmet and placard showing maps of where the troops would be the next day. They also quote the Belgium ambassador, Count de la Lane, saying in 1905 that, the hostility of the English public towards the German nation is founded apparently in jealousy and fear. Jealousy in view of Germany's economic and commercial schemes. Fear from the perception that the German fleet may perhaps one day become a competitor for naval supremacy. This state of mind is fomented by the English press. Heedless of international complications, the spirit of jingoism runs its course unchecked among the people of England, and the newspapers are bit by bit, poisoning public perception. Whether it was centrally directed or not, there does appear to be a whipping up of anti-German sentiment at that time. I mentioned Britain's signing of the Entente Cordiale with France in 1904. This forms a central part of the perfidious Albion thesis, especially in regard to the situation in Morocco. There was a concocted incident over Morocco, and, and the the allegation that, that Germany was wanted was secretly trying to um, take over uh, the British-French influence on, in Morocco. 
and 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 that that literally was nonsense. But it was blown up into an incident, and people were 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 told prepare. You had better prepare yourself for the possibility of war because we will not be dictated to by that Kaiser person over in Berlin. The Entente Cordiale was an agreement principally concerning colonial demarcation. The most important feature was, in return for the French promising not to obstruct British actions in Egypt, the British promised to allow the French to preserve order and provide assistance in Morocco. The treaty contained a secret annex dealing with the possibility of changed circumstances in the administration of either of the two countries. Doherty and McGregor present this as a way for Britain to renege on its promise to leave Egypt and for France to overthrow the Sultan and take full control of Morocco. This would then have the effect of sparking war with Germany due to that country's economic interests there. If that was their plan, it nearly worked. In 1905, the French submitted unacceptable reforms to the Moroccan Sultan who the German Kaiser then backed, allowing the Sultan to reject them. The German Chancellor went so far as to bluff war and threatened to sign a defensive alliance with the Sultan. Things became sufficiently heated for Germany to call up reserve units and France to move troops to the German border. Cooler heads ultimately prevailed, however, and the issue was temporarily resolved at a conference. US President Theodore Roosevelt was actually involved in the peace conference, ironic as that might be, and Doherty and McGregor quote him writing to the German ambassador saying, I felt that if a war were to break out, whatever might happen to France, England would profit immensely, while Germany would lose her colonies and perhaps her fleet. Such being the case, I did not feel that anything I might say would carry any weight with England. A second Moroccan crisis erupted in 1911, after deployment of a substantial force of French troops in the interior of the country. This was in response to Moroccan tribesmen killing nine French workers, in objection to them digging up gravestones to make way for a harbour. Retaliatory shelling by the French Navy is supposed to have killed thousands. The New York Times reported the incident as the French repeating the history of the Americans in Cuba and the Philippines, of the French in Indochina, and of the English in Egypt. They all started by fighting the natives and ended by keeping the country. Once again, Doherty and McGregor present this as agents in the French government, with the British elite in the background, attempting to provoke war. They quote the Belgian diplomat, Baron Greendell, forgive my pronunciation, as saying, Little by little, the French have got possession of everything taking advantage of incidents which have arisen automatically and creating other openings when they were needed. Can the expedition now be regarded as anything else other than an act of the same farce? The Moroccan Sultan has already lost his precious hold over his subjects because he had to submit to becoming a mere tool in the hands of France. The most interesting feature is the forebodings with which the German government pretends to ignore the conquest of Morocco she can choose between pretending not to see and war, which the emperor will not have and which will be condemned by German public opinion. The Germans responded to French expansion by deploying a gunboat to Morocco, which prompted Chancellor of the Exchequer David Lloyd George to deliver a speech declaring, 
If Britain is treated badly where her interests are vitally affected, as if she is of no account in the cabinet of nations, then I say emphatically that peace at that price would be a humiliation intolerable for a great country like ours to endure. This is especially interesting as David Lloyd George was strongly anti-war and had been one of the fiercest opponents of the Boer War. During that period, the Daily Mail, ever the Daily Mail, had labelled him the most anti-British member of Parliament. Doherty and McGregor present him as a man ultimately more self-serving than he was principled, allowing himself to become a tool of imperialism inside the Liberal Party in exchange for promotion. Lloyd George would go on to become Prime Minister in 1916. The idea that the Germans might build a naval port and thereby control entry to the Mediterranean was used by Foreign Minister Edward Grey to justify informing the German ambassador that Britain would respond forcefully to defend its interests. Britain sent battleships to Morocco in case war broke out. Once again, negotiations between Berlin and Paris resolved the crisis. France took over Morocco as a protectorate in exchange for territorial concessions to German Cameroon from the French Congo. Were the French attempting to provoke a full-blown war with Germany? Or were they simply fulfilling imperial ambitions in North Africa and willing to play brinksmanship to do so? I simply don't know, but I do think Doherty and McGregor have a good case here. Journalist William T. Stead, who had been a part of Cecil Rhodes' inner circle before their fallout over the Boer War, published the following warning. We all but went to war with Germany. We have escaped war, but we have not escaped the natural and abiding enmity of the German people. Is it possible to frame a heavier indictment of the foreign policy of any British ministry? The secret, the open secret of this almost incredible crime against treaty faith, British interests and the peace of the world is the unfortunate fact that Sir Edward Grey has been dominated by men at the Foreign Office who believe all considerations must be subordinated to the one supreme duty of thwarting Germany at every turn, even if in doing so British interests, treaty faith and the peace of the world are trampled underfoot. I speak of that which I know. The war obviously ultimately started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophia, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Doherty and McGregor contend the British, French and Russians were at work here too. Well, I guess this brings us to the ostensible beginning of the story on the 28th of June 1914 and the assassination of the Archduke, uh, which I will note parenthetically for the viewers out there, even the official history of World War I starts with a conspiracy theory for anyone who would can protest that this is a conspiracy that you're painting here. Well, yes, the official story starts with a conspiracy, namely the conspiracy of the Black Hand and the uh, young Bosnians to commit an assassination in order to uh, influence the direction of events with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, etc., etc. Again, I think we know that part of the story, but the question becomes, was the secret elite involved in the assassination of the Archduke? We believe that, that they, they generally helped in the finance of the event, that they had knowledge that there were socialist groups of young men at that time in Europe who, who would see an attack on the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire as an important socialist statement. Money passed hands. We, we, we believe it, it passed from France to Russia through 
to Serbia, um, proving it. All documentation has been burned. I mean, it's just not going to happen that someone's got a ledger lying somewhere with, with all of the proof in it. But you cannot manipulate such a thing without there being background money. Yes, uh, if you look at the, the whole history of the Black Hand group of apis and uh, of, of the machinations which were going on uh, in, in Serbia, you have to you have to really begin to worry of how how sadly rotten that state was. Quite interestingly, and I've always thought this was a great quote. The uh, the English newspaper, the Manchester Guardian, uh, wrote at the time that if someone took the entire country of Serbia and attached a tub to it, took it out into the North Sea and allowed it to sink, no one would notice. <laughs> and I mean that that kind of kind of sums up where. What, what was literally a non-event of a, of a country became the central focus suddenly of an allegation that these people were trying to, to in some way or other, so insult Austria that, uh, well, what happened after that was, and this is a word you've always got to watch, inevitable. That, because that's the story. Having assassinated Archduke Ferdinand and, and, and his wife, uh, war became inevitable. Well, it wasn't inevitable. In fact, all of Europe sympathised, sympathised greatly with the, the the Emperor of Austria. His his heir had been had been slaughtered. Uh, everyone everyone claimed great sadness and and great pity. And there was to have been a massive European uh, funeral for for the for the poor guy, but. Uh, what was put about that there were still some very, very uh, dangerous men abroad who might shoot uh, any royalty who appeared to do this. So it became more of a, 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 a not quite a family, but more limited um, state funeral. But the real, the real machinations came when the Austrians made a demand to the Serbians. Now, there's no doubt, no doubt that Serbia had nurtured these men. What Austria demanded was some kind of, well, a, a very detailed uh, retribution that, you know, they wanted all of the people who had been caught to be handed to them. They wanted the, the, the letter of the law to be applied and they wanted to be in charge of the investigation into the whole event. Now, it was that bit they, that they should be they should be allowed to investigate in Serbia, which became suddenly the issue that everyone turned against Austria on. This incredible orchestrated bolt uh, fast where, where they, they turned against the people that they had two weeks before being lamenting on, on their loss and, and, and being so so concerned about. This, this was ridiculous. But suddenly Austria found itself in the in, in the limelight as the malcontent. They were going too far. This was wrong. Of course, Germany was massively uh, and completely aligned to Austria. So anything happening to Austria was going to uh, reverberate and involve the Kaiser and Germany. And then, and then came coup de grace. Prussia in the form of the Tsar decided that um, they, they, they were the guardians of Serbia's freedom. 
clever. I mean, I don't think even the Serbians knew where that came from, but they grabbed at it with both hands because obviously having the, the backing and support of Russia was unquestionably um, going to, to help them greatly. But suddenly, what had been a very sad event, over two months grew into a situation where the, the world stood at the brink of war. At least Europe stood at the brink of war at that particular time. And it became the fault of the Austrians. It became the fault of uh, the Kaiser because he couldn't allegedly control the Austrians. That the whole paraphernalia of the media focused, um, a, a phrase you, you won't have heard, fake news. Um, this was a most magnificent example of fake news, of genuinely taking the truth, turning on its head, turning it on its head, and using that as yet another reason why action had to be taken. It became the evil, the evil Kaiser and his uh, bloodthirsty Austrians against the poor Serbs who'd done nothing, backed by the noble Russians, and of course, if the if the noble Russians were going to be involved, so would the noble friends. If the noble friends, oh, we've actually got a secret treaty, but we'll tell you about that later once we're at war. Conflicts in the Balkans had been going on for decades, with the Ottoman Empire being slowly pushed out of Europe. The ones leading up to the First World War could be said to have been started by Italy in 1911, with an assault on Libya. Then three distinct provinces off the Ottoman Empire. The French and British had essentially green-lighted an Italian invasion of Libya to pull Italy away from the Triple Alliance of Germany and Austria-Hungary. Doherty and McGregor, of course, see this as part of a preparation for the upcoming war. The head of the Serbian Foreign Ministry would later describe the Italian attack on Tripoli as the initial aggression of the First World War. This assault on the Ottoman Empire emboldened the Balkan states to drive the Turks out of their region, with war breaking out in October of 1912. The end result of this, as well as another war the following year, was the Ottomans losing the vast majority of their European lands, and Serbia doubling in size. Doherty and McGregor claimed British and Russian imperialists were the hidden hand behind these wars, knowing that Serbia posed a threat to Austria, after Austria's annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1908, and that conflict between the two could spark a Europe-wide war. Their case for this involves quite complex machinations between Russian diplomats and the British Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, and I'm going to have to relegate this to a spin-off episode. They see the conclusion of these machinations as being the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, setting Europe on the path to war. As you heard in the last clip, they are sympathetic to the Austro-Hungarian response to the assassination, seeing their demands on Serbia as entirely reasonable. This is in stark contrast to many historians who lay the blame for the war at Germany and Austria-Hungary's doorstep. Take Dr. Heather Jones, a historian at the London School of Economics. She writes that, Austria-Hungary's military hawks, principal culprits for the conflict, saw the Sarajevo assassination by a Bosnian Serb as an excuse to conquer and destroy Serbia, an unstable neighbour which sought to expand beyond its borders into Austro-Hungarian territories. Serbia, exhausted by the two Balkan wars of 1912-13, in which it had played a major role, 
did not want war in 1914. Broader European war ensued because German political and military figures egged on Austria-Hungary, Germany's ally, to attack Serbia. This alarmed Russia, Serbia's supporter, which put its armies on a war footing before all options for peace had been fully exhausted. This frightened Germany into preemptively declaring war on Russia and on Russia's ally, France, and launching a brutal invasion, partly via Belgium, thereby bringing in Britain, a defender of Belgian neutrality and supporter of France. It does seem clear that Hawks in Austria issued their demands expecting Serbia would not meet them, but were they especially egregious? Of the ten points, two were particularly controversial. Point five demanded that the Belgrade government accept the collaboration in Serbia of organs of the imperial and royal government of Austria-Hungary in suppression of the subversive movement directed at the territorial integrity of the monarchy. And point six stated that organs delegated by Austria-Hungary would take part in the investigation relating to accessories in the crime. These were the demands that Sir Edward Grey described as the most formidable document he had ever seen addressed by one state to another that was independent. In his book, The Sleepwalkers, Christopher Clarke makes the comparison between Austria's ultimatum to Serbia and the one issued 85 years later by NATO, which demanded complete surrender of the country's sovereignty and which Henry Kissinger described as a provocation, an excuse to start bombing. It's hard to think that Doherty and McGregor are wrong when they claim Edward Grey was effervescing over them. Clark goes on to write of the Serbian response that The claim often made that Serbia's reply represented an almost complete capitulation to the Austrian demands is profoundly misleading. This was a document fashioned for Serbia's friends, not for its enemy. It offered the Austrians amazingly little. Clark goes on to say that the response sufficed to persuade Serbia's friends that in the face of such full capitulation, Vienna had no possible grounds for taking action. Serbia had essentially received its own blank check from Russia, allowing it to dismiss Austrian demands whilst appearing to capitulate. Near the start of the episode, I mentioned the historian Sean McMeekin and his somewhat revisionist take that Russia was principally responsible for the initiation of war. Without going too far into the deep diplomatic machinations, I think even a fairly surface analysis reveals this to be true. In his book, July 1914, McMeekin writes that Tsar Nicholas II signed into law the period propriety to war at midday on Saturday the 25th of July, before learning of Serbia's reply to the ultimatum and before either Serbia or Austria had mobilised. Because, unlike Germany's version, it was enacted and carried out in secret, historians have been able to deny warlike intent on Russia's part, the idea being that preliminary mobilisation measures did not mean war. Some have even gone further, saying that even Russia's general mobilisation, ordered at 4pm on the 30th of July, did not mean war. In both places the claim is dubious, although it has slightly more surface plausibility with the period propriety to war. The measures inaugurated on Sunday the 26th of July, viewed in their own terms, clearly fell well short of war. Just as clearly, they constituted preparations for war. This was indeed the entire reason why the secret period preparatory to war had been developed in 1912 and 13. 
to allow Russia a head start in mobilizing against the Austro-Germans. The statute clearly states that the period preparatory to war means the period of diplomatic complications preceding the opening hostilities. Or as laid down in the Tsar's directive, it will be advantageous to complete concentration without beginning hostilities in order not to deprive the enemy irrecoverably of the hope that war can still be avoided. Our measures for this must be masked by clever diplomatic negotiations in order to lull to sleep as much as possible the enemy's fears. In this sense, and in this sense alone, Russian preparation for war was not war. However insincere, diplomacy could continue. Partial mobilization was a diplomatic conjuring act designed to show France, and more so Britain, that Russia was not giving Germany a pretext for war. The decision for European war was made by Russia on the night of 29th of July 1914, when Tsar Nicholas II signed the order for general mobilization. So clearly did the Tsar know this that, on being moved by a telegram from Kaiser Wilhelm, he changed his mind. I will not be responsible for a monstrous slaughter is the key line of the entire July crisis, for it shows that the Tsar knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. Doherty and McGregor are at pains to stress throughout their work that in the context of the early 20th century, mobilization is war, and that this fact has been misunderstood and obfuscated by historians. Where Doherty and McGregor part company from Shaw McMeekin is on the question of British complicity. Dr. McMeekin writes that, Sir Edward Grey's sins during the July crisis were off a mission, not commission, and that, bringing about a great power war was the furthest thing from Grey's intention. McMeekin sees Edward Grey as acting to avoid war, but paints his actions as counterproductive and bizarre. Doherty and McGregor claim that all of Grey's bizarre actions make perfect sense if you think that his real goal was to initiate a Europe-wide war and drag Britain into it. Grey dangled an offer of neutrality before the Germans if they did not attack France, indicating he could guarantee French neutrality too. This offer caused the Kaiser to attempt to suspend the mobilisation against France. However, it had no substance to it and fell apart. Grey informed Germany that Britain was not bound by any obligations to enter the war, whilst going before Parliament and insisting on obligations to defend the French coastline and protect the neutrality of Belgium. He proposed that European leaders attend mediation in London, with the condition that Austria must accept Serbia's reply to their demands. Doherty and McGregor proposed that all of this was simply aimed at buying time for Russian mobilisation and encouraging Germany into war by hinting at British neutrality, whilst making the Germans out to be the aggressors. Britain and France had entered into a naval agreement in 1912, where the French took over security of the Mediterranean, whilst the British fleet secured France's northern coast. At the time of signing, this had been presented as not being a commitment to cooperate in war. Of course it was, as Grey now revealed. As Britain would not half go to war, a naval defence pact amounted to an agreement to deploy ground forces too. Grey threatened that if France was forced to withdraw her fleet from the Mediterranean, the small British force there could be attacked by Italy. I presume he was inferring a threat to Egypt and the Suez Canal. The naval agreement of France meant British involvement in the war could be presented not just as a point of honour, but as a geopolitical necessity. 
Gray, along with Winston Churchill and several other ministers, threatened to resign if Britain stayed neutral, which would have brought about a collapse of the government. Germany had attempted to come to an arrangement with Belgium where German troops could transit through the country and financially compensate Belgium at the cessation of hostilities. Darty and McGregor draw a comparison of British troops transiting through Portuguese territory during the Boer War. The Belgian government rejected this and Grey concluded his pro-war speech to Parliament by drawing on an 1839 treaty on Belgian neutrality declaring that if Britain did stand aside, forfeiting her Belgian treaty obligations, she would then sacrifice our respect and good name and reputation before the world. And that Germany would dominate the entire Channel coastline and have England at her mercy. And with that the case for war was won. The British cabinet decided upon it, Parliament was consulted for funding several days later, and King George V issued a declaration. Harry Patch and millions of other young men would be sent to the slaughter in the greatest tragedy of modern history. And that's where I'll start to wrap it up for now. I would like to explore this theme further, whilst also progressing of the series in a way that tolerates some ambiguity over how the war started. I have obviously looked at the outbreak through the unusual lens of British malevolence. Whilst I think this thesis holds up to a good degree and deserves its place at the table, there are surely others of value too. I've particularly drawn upon Sean McMeekin's book, July 1914, and Christopher Clarke's book, The Sleepwalkers. I would suggest Clarke's account both contradicts and complements Doherty and McGregor's. As an example, Clarke writes, the outbreak of war in 1914 is not an Agatha Christie drama at the end of which we will discover the corporate standing over the corpse in the conservatory with a smoking pistol. There is no smoking gun in the story, or, rather, there is one in the hands of every major character. Viewed in this light, the outbreak of war was a tragedy, not a crime. Clark is particularly criticising the effort to place all the blame on Germany and Austria-Hungary, as that has been more the focus of historical efforts. In the next episode, I'll be looking at Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor's follow-up book, Prolonging the Agony. They make the case that British imperialists sought to deliberately prolong the war to give Germany the most thorough thrashing possible, a claim which I think is orders of magnitude more controversial than the one we've looked at today. I'll then get to a place where I'll feel on somewhat firmer ground with Woodrow Wilson and the American entry into the war. Thank you very much for listening. To support the show and join conversations on this topic and Zoom groups and such, please see the subscription option in the info box.